When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time. And one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Catherine Standifer, author of the memoir, Lightning Flowers. In any other time in human history, to take electricity to your heart would be nothing short of a spiritual transformation. It would be some kind of spiritual sign. We'll be back with Catherine Standifer after these essential words. First, I want to say thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents nine and a half years of weekly interviews with writers on craft and the literary life. This interview is one piece of an archive of more than 380 conversations that go into depth about how writers create their work and the subject matters that obsess them. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. When you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that is committed to sharing the insights and challenges of the writing life. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free to you. But it is not without expense to me, in hard costs and in labor. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours an episode. There's also equipment and subscriptions to interview platforms and sound transcripts and editing software and hosting services for the sound and a website for the archive. And those things added up are not cheap. And all of this, this whole entire colossal effort takes a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition every week. And please understand, I am the entire show from start to finish. I am the editor, the interviewer, the reader, the researcher, the staff. Sometimes the staff doesn't perform as well as I'd like, but I am the only person performing. So why not consider supporting a woman with a dream to share literary wisdom from some of the world's best writers in a podcast platform? I would say with the number of episodes I've produced, which is actually more than in the archive, so more than 400, my track record is pretty stellar. And please beat the odds of having to listen to this message seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. As a thank you, my patrons receive access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you mostly for listening and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My interview today is with nonfiction writer Catherine Standifer. 
Her book, Lightning Flowers, was a finalist for the 2021 Kirkus Prize in nonfiction and was also a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice staff pick. It has been featured in People Magazine, on NPR's Fresh Air, and the Goop podcast. Sandifer earned her MFA in creative nonfiction from the University of Arizona. Lightning Flowers is a memoir about health and illness and the effects of our medical system. Catherine Standifer recounts the true story of the rare diagnosis that upended her rugged life in the mountains of Wyoming and sent her tumbling into a fraught maze of cardiology units, dramatic surgeries, and slow, painful recoveries. As her life increasingly comes to revolve around the internal defibrillator freshly wired into her heart, she becomes consumed with questions about the supply chain that allows such an ostensibly miraculous device to exist. So she sets out to trace its materials back to their roots. She visits the labs of a medical device manufacturer in Southern California and metal mines in the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Madagascar. Lightning Flowers offers a global reckoning with the social and environmental costs of a technology that promises to be life-saving, but is, in fact, much more complicated. We recorded this interview in a live discussion at an independently owned bookstore in Colorado called Bookbinders Basalt in September 2022. We began with me asking Catherine this question. And I just want to start with asking you to describe what happened to you in 2012 on the soccer field in (laughs) Arizona. So I was on an intramural soccer team and someone had just fallen. And so I was kind of paying attention to when is the game going to start? He's getting back up. And all of a sudden I heard screaming and it took me a minute to realize that it was me. And my hands became claws. They were curling with the electricity of my implanted cardiac defibrillator, shocking me for the first time. And the device had been in my body for three years by then. And that's why I hadn't immediately recognized it. But I heard my younger sister's voice in my head saying, there's no way you wouldn't scream if you felt it. And I realized that it was happening. So what was your medical journey to have this device in your heart? What is the history Tell us about long QT, congenital long QT syndrome, how you found out you had it, and if you remember the first moments when you got that diagnosis, what that felt like in your body. (laughs) So I was 24 years old. I was working as a ski instructor and a climbing guide in Jackson Hole, and I was in a folk band, and we had a gig coming up where we were supposed to play Uncle John's band. And I was just horrible at getting these verses out of order. And so we had an extra practice to try to nail this down. And very early in the practice, I saw that my cell phone was ringing and it was someone who was trying to pay me for something, which I very much wanted to take that call. And so I ran outside with the cell phone and the next thing I knew, I was waking up not knowing who I was or where I was, unable to move, unable to speak. And it took a little bit for feeling to come back into my body, for my voice to come back, for the awareness to come back. And very quickly, I understood that I must have the same heart condition as my sister. She had started going into cardiac arrest in her dorm room when she was 18 at University of Colorado Boulder. Her roommate's alarm clock would go off and it would trigger this very strange, rare arrhythmia that has to do with the repolarization interval of the heart. So that's a fancy way of saying that the heart is a... um, it's a electric organ and it has to generate uh, a signal to tell the different parts of the muscle when it's time to beat and in what order. And during long QT, um, when that repolarization interval is getting a little bit long, the, the way the heart beats gets asynchronized. So certain parts of the muscle are ready to go and other parts are not. And so what you get is kind of a quivering instead of a pumping of blood. And there are different types of long QT. One of them has to do with sleep. One of them has to do with physical activity. Ours has to do with adrenaline in the body and the, the startle response, which is why the roommate's alarm clock was a problem and also why the cell phone was a problem. So I was lying there in the gravel My guitarist finally noticed that I was down and came to uh, see how I was doing, (laughs) grabbed my cell phone, called my boyfriend at the time, and the first thing I said to my boyfriend was, you can't take me to the hospital 
I'll never get insurance again. And so we had this lag while we tried to figure out the year was 2009 and the Affordable Care Act had not yet been passed. And so I understood that if I had what my sister had, I would probably need an implanted cardiac defibrillator. And that if I went to a hospital, that would mean I couldn't get insurance because I had a pre-existing condition. And that would mean that this device would have to be implanted out of pocket. And we did end up going to the ER and the ER doctor, you know, heard me basically say, you need to check my QT interval. And he came back and was very blasé, just said, well, but it looks like you have it. (laughs) And I wailed. Honestly, a sound came out of my body that was uh, unlike anything I'd heard from myself before because it was the end of one life. You know, I, I didn't die of cardiac arrest in the parking lot. And I also did die of cardiac arrest in the parking lot because the life that I would go on to lead would be so drastically different. And I, at that point, couldn't even have known how different. I was picturing the situation my sister had been in having the procedure with private insurance and in a kind of stable environment. And that was not ultimately what a lot of my health journey looked like. Yeah. I mean, you were living like a lot of people here live. You were, you know, guiding, you, you didn't have insurance, you were biking, being in the outdoors, playing in this band. And when your sister, when it first happened to your sister, your family, your parents really wanted you to get checked out and you're like, I can't. So I'm wondering what it was like for you in that time before you had your incident. Like, did you think that this was coming for you? (laughs) Not consciously. And also as a wiser, older version of myself, I'm fairly certain that the reason I did not walk myself into a hospital and request an EKG just to pay out of pocket was because I understood that my life would be over as I knew it. You know, I hadn't moved to Jackson to be a ski instructor and climbing teacher. Those were jobs I happened to be qualified for. I moved to Jackson because I was in love with those forests and those rivers. And because I had wanted to be a writer who lived in a cabin in Wyoming for my whole life. And I understood even then that to be a writer, actually, to actually publish a book, to actually build a career, you have to center that And what working in outdoor education allowed me was shoulder seasons, mud seasons, where I did a bunch of work at once, I got a big paycheck, and then I got time. And so I wrote a lot more than if I'd had a year-round job. And I understood that if I had this heart condition, if I was going to have to prioritize taking jobs for insurance, that was going to be the death of the thing that mattered most to me in the world, both the writing and living in this remote place that didn't even have a cardiologist on staff at the hospital. So, you know, I knew that my sister had the condition and I wasn't as tuned into supporting her as perhaps I could have been. And I think if I had been, I might've thought about that for me more. And I'm certain that I was no different than anyone else who is young and invincible and uncomfortable with what other people are going through in terms of mortality. As a, as a person, you have this curiosity and this ethic about the world, about being socially conscious, about protecting the environment. And you, you had this other moment when you had this shock in Arizona, where you really asked yourself a question as it went further and you, you, you're like, well, what does it cost to have this in me? So can you talk a little bit about that and your curiosity and how that was probably pretty amazing for a writer? (laughs) Yes. So that is the strange thing about the night I took the shocks to the heart. So the device was generating 850 volts of electricity at a time in hopes of restarting my heart. Defibrillators essentially flatline a heart so that the electricity can kick back in in a normal way. And so I took one and then there was this pause while I realized what happened and then it happened again. And then I was really like, oh my God. And then it happened a third time. And that's when I heard a voice in my head say, you can either scream or breathe. And I went to my knees and I started taking these deep yoga breaths and that lowered my heart rate enough. You know, it turned out the device was shocking me by accident 
uh, it was shocking me because I had been over 170 beats per minute for three minutes or more. That was sort of a bizarre criteria, some box in my software that was checked hashtag cyborg problems. <laughs> and so this moment of coming back into my body and yoga breathing and understanding then when it stopped shocking me that it probably hadn't been shocking me because I needed it, that I should have been passed out if those were real shocks, that these were some kind of error. And I didn't know until I went into the hospital that it was this issue of having a high heart rate for a certain number of minutes, which was because I was out of shape and playing soccer. <laughs> and so there was this moment that I came to the ground afterward and I was still breathing deeply. I was very present with this sense of having something inside me that was supposed to be life-saving, but that now was harming me, that now was acting in what would end up feeling almost predatory because at any time, at any moment, there was this thing inside me that could attack me when I didn't need it, that was out of my control, and that when I went to medical settings, I didn't receive a lot of empathy for this experience because it was considered to be so normal in the realm of defibrillator patients, which is wild in any other time in human history. To take electricity to your heart would be nothing short of a spiritual transformation. It would be some kind of spiritual sign. And so I was lying on the soccer field and I was smelling my burned tissues and I was just sort of racing with how this changed my relationship to the device. And this question did land in my body that was not, um, it was not a question I reached for. It just sort of arrived. And it was like, if, if that were to have saved my life and also if it didn't, I have this metal in my body. Where did it come from? What did it cost to get it? And how do I feel about that? Can I figure that out? And so in the weeks after the shocks, I got really obsessed with this component. And in particular, the year was 2012 and the Democratic Republic of Congo was known as the rape capital of the world. Eve Ensler had just kind of kicked up her work to build what's called the City of Joy, um, in which women who've been sexually assaulted can come recover in the Congo. And there was a lot of focus on the issue of conflict minerals and how pit mining these hand-dug mines could be used to fund conflict and how women could be kept by sex as sex slaves beside the pits, how kids could be forced to work. And I really wanted to learn whether or not I had conflict minerals in my defibrillator. And I started going on this journey to try to figure out, do companies even know where their materials come from? And if they were to, what would that process be like? And the further I got into that question, the more I saw that there was also almost a more interesting side than just the worst case scenario, which was the best case scenario. You know, is it possible to take these resources out of the ground in an ethical way, in a way that supports people and their, their lives, in a way that supports ecosystems? Is that possible? And as I got further down that question, it, it kind of opened up this whole other world for me in not just what does it mean for me to live in relationship to death as someone with a heart condition who has a medical technology, but also what does my life mean alongside all these other lives? So I want to talk about that journey, but first I want you to describe a little bit about when you found out that you were going to get this device because your sister had it. That You weren't like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Sweet. <laughs> you have learned through a lot of of conflict with the medical system to advocate for yourself, but it was also this moment where you really didn't want it. And that for a lot of people, that's kind of shocking. It's like, well, this is going to save your life, but you had so many tears and so much feeling and so such a deep resistance to this. Can you talk about that? It's a major theme of the book, the way my body often knew things before I could articulate why. And I think that's true in most of our lives in ways that it's very hard to put a finger on because until you have the sort of logical explanation, it doesn't make sense and we're not trained to follow those feelings. But something about me was deeply uneasy. One of the logical stories that I pinned to it that I talk about in the book is that I took a class at Colorado College on environmental justice and we visited a molybdenum mine in Cuesta, New Mexico that had wreaked havoc on the human population and on the ecosystem. And it had actually been closed for a number of years until 9-11. 
And then, because we had war, we needed more steel. So we needed more of the alloy that hardens steel, which is molybdenum. And it just got me thinking in terms of every product you touch has an origin. Everything is earth. Everything is matter. Everything is connected to other people's lives and these, these places, these systems. So I was aware in some, it was conscious, um, it wasn't as obsessive as I would get later, but I was aware that this was hard won. You know, it was something that had to be made and came from somewhere and required something. But there was also something fundamental about um, the way a human body was changed once it had a machine implanted in it. I was really a Luddite. I really was slow to upgrade. I um, had resisted cell phones at all. I later would resist smartphones. I think I just had that sense of, I don't want to be a person with a machine. It, it made me deeply uneasy. And the doctor who was, um, you know, part of the story is because I was uninsured, my younger sister's surgeon offered to help me. He said, if you move to Boulder and have the surgery at this hospital, I can donate my fee. And I ended up going in through the ER uh, on a very scary night, although I did think about going in th through the ER in a fake way <laughs> for the same purpose. Um, but because I went in through the ER, the hospital could write off more of my bill. And Dr. Oza got his colleague, the anesthesiologist, to donate his fee. And St. Jude Medical donated my defibrillator. So there was this sense of like, people are trying to help you. Dr. Oza doesn't want you to die on his watch. He has daughters. He's seen your sister through this and how dangerous this is. So there was this immense pressure to get the machine that would solve death. And also there was an immense feeling in my body that this was not gonna be good. This, this was a loss in some way. And yeah, I don't know how to feel now about <laughs> if I had just said, I'm not doing it because I have this feeling. Because at the time the standstill was, I also didn't know how to continue my life if the threat of death was going to constantly be there. And the hard truth of this book is we all can die every day. The threat of death is actually always constant. And the way that we are conscious of that or not is part of what being involved in a personal illness journey or a family illness journey can show us. But I was trying to make something go away that fundamentally can't be made to go away. And that's not to say that defibrillators don't solve don't save lives, um, but it's also a little bit more complicated than just here's the one-time Band-Aid. And so once you did get it in, that's not like a casual surgery. You know, you <laughs> one of the things you wrote, like you felt like you were suddenly old after the surgery and you were in your 20s. So can you talk a little bit about just the recovery? Yeah, that recovery I think is extra hard because the medical world wants to view it as routine, there's not a space in the body for a titanium box full of battery and microelectronics. So they have to actually create what they call a pocket. And they're also running a wire down your heart and actually corkscrewing it into the tissue because the heart is always moving. There's a lot of wetness. There's a lot of, there's just a lot happening and you need these wires to stay in the exact right spot so that they're sensing accurately and delivering shocks active, accurately. And so there's a little corkscrew with a steroid in it and then scar tissue grows over it to hold it in place. But when you wake up, you're a person who's just had something corkscrewed into their heart. <laughs> and that's not the terms that the medical community would talk to you about it. You know, people get pacemakers and defibrillators all the time. It's an outpatient most of the time. It's just a cath lab procedure. Um, you're also a person who's just taken a shock to the heart while you were under because they need to test the device. They'll essentially initiate an arrhythmia and see if the device recognizes it. And then you're a person recovering from the creation of this pocket and the actual incision. And there's a lot of not moving your left arm, not being able to lift, not being able to reach. Part of why it's a hard recovery is that it's so vulnerable, that most of us are not used to having to ask other people to do everything for us. It's also tricky to be a young person fundamentally with a surgery like this because I still want to do down dogs. <laughs> I still wanted to rock climb. I went from such a high level of activity to really pausing in order to recover from the surgery. 
And that's a shock to the system. You don't feel like yourself if you can't, you know, connect with nature in the same way or exercise and have that endorphin. And there's all these concerns about the way the body changes shape. There was for me as a 24 year old woman. Um, And so, yeah, it was really this crossing of a threshold where I suddenly understood pain in a very different way. And I understood that, oh, on the other side of the terror of not having the device is the terror of wondering if it's about to go off all the time and, you know, trying to exercise with a heart monitor and just a lot of transitions into what does it mean to be a cyborg person now? And and this book is such a mixture of your emotional life and also your in- intelligence, like following your intelligence and your curiosity to Africa and these countries to see. Can you talk a little bit about writing that, writing about real people, writing about your life, mining your memory to do that and getting that emotional resonance on the page because it's very full of feeling? (laughs) I've been thinking a lot lately about how a person like me can get told early in life that they feel too much or feel too deeply or need to let go of certain things, not just not moving on fast enough. And I've really been reflecting on how the job of the memoirist is to make the book feel the way it felt. And so you have to have this exquisite ability to store up what these things are actually like. And that's a strange thing because the other people in your life don't necessarily have that. They're not built the same way. They don't have the same memory. They weren't taking notes or journaling in the same way. So it's a fascinating process to navigate how you hold your space around the story you lived and how you understood things at the time and how that shaped what the story was and also what you can see now and what other people would say. Um, the, The boyfriend that I wrote about, that was probably the hardest piece to navigate in terms of someone else's life because he's a person that I care about immensely who I had quite a deep friendship with for a long time he's less in touch now understandably (laughs) Um, and we had a lot of back and forth where I don't think he understood for a while what it would mean to be a character in this book and then once he did he really sort of freaked out or pushed back a little bit. And then ultimately he did give me the gift of a two hour interview where I got to ask him questions like, why did you want to date me? How do you tell the story of our breakup? What do you remember from the summer of 2009? You know, just really trying to fill in my sense of how he lived the experience and how I could help readers see over my shoulder into whatever his truth was kind of along with what I lived, right? A little bit fuller and richer. Both of my parents and my sister are major characters in the book, and they got the chance to read uh, the first draft that the publisher got, not for veto power, but for fact-checking and for having the conversations now. And it did bring up some really interesting conversations. My dad and I had to talk about how I portray our financial relationship and... My sister was extremely generous with me, sharing her journals, allowing me to just ask a million questions like, okay, at that party after your first heart surgery where your friends were awkward, do you remember anything about what you were wearing, what you guys were eating? You know, I'm building scenes. I don't want it to feel flat. And so um, it really required the gift of her deciding that this was her story too, which I think we both agree, that you can't have the story of a defibrillator gone wrong and a healthcare story gone wrong if you don't also have the person whose life was saved by the device. And that is my sister. And our differing circumstances show a lot about how the healthcare system works and what it means to be young and sick. But the questions I asked her and having her read all this stuff about the way things can go wrong, the way technology can break, it's very scary. And most patients don't want to look at that or they're trying to hold their own experience and it's, it's too much to hold at once. And so I really was asking a lot of her. I I think also you're portraying a lot of doctors and the medical system. I mean, doctors who, you know, do have, you do have some sort of intimate relationship with, they've seen your chest um, and you write a lot about the ones who don't listen and the, the, the one who finally did, but you're, you're writing 
all of this, they're almost like the epicenter of your trauma and you're writing about trauma. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the doctors and writing about trauma. That's a really important question for this book, because I think part of what I ended up having to really tease out about my experience was what are the parts of this walk that I've had that are inherent to experiencing illness, experiencing proximity to death, these very human things about being young and sick. And then what are the parts that have to do with the way my age plays a factor or the way my access within a system plays a factor or the way the technology breaking plays a factor? You know, what's the actual heart condition part? And then what's all of the rest of it that maybe we could work on as as a society? And so I really wanted the portrayals of the doctors to be human and not punitive, but some of them really were not able to support me in the ways that I needed at the times I needed. And to write back to that really required that I do a lot of personal work around where my authority comes from. Uh, Who am I to speak back? The medical system taught me that I was someone who was dismissible and someone who was hysterical, someone who needed to, ma'am, calm down. And there was a coming into... I don't want to be um, wild on the page in a way that suggests unprocessed trauma. And that means I have to process all of the trauma so that I have access to the full story and I can be strategic about what I do show and what I don't show. And I can control my voice and my tone and my craft choices in a different way. So there was a significant part of this book. Um, I sold the book in late 2017 and I started living on the road in the fall of 2018, mostly from writing residencies. And I ended up kind of experiencing this long procrastination where I got stuck after the first section. And I can understand that now as I got stuck after the stuff that was already processed because what I needed was more support and more tools for the personal work, the embodied work, the somatic work that was going to be required in order to access telling that story for real. And In order to do that, (laughs) I had to really take myself out of everything else. And so I spent this winter on a mesa in New Mexico. This is before I moved there. Um, And I was just doing trauma work and, and body work and trying to approach some of these scenes. And there's one scene in here where I wake up uh, after a heart surgery and the, the nurse is removing a sheath from my femoral artery. The sheath is the piece that holds the artery open so they can extend tools up the artery uh, to perform a procedure. And they're trying to get a clot to form because that part of the body, the heart is pumping Uh, with a lot of pressure and the femoral artery can essentially cause you to bleed out. I mean, they need to get a clot to form. And so she puts her hand uh, along that artery in my pelvis and it has to be with immense pressure. It was the most painful experience of my life. I ended up clamped to the bed and just holding that spot. And to write that, I realized, you know, I'd already been doing all this body work related to my hips and my pelvis, all this chronic pain stuff that I had going on from these procedures. But I realized that I was going to have to be precise in a way that I couldn't be um, if I didn't slow down and do the trauma work part. So I had these YouTube videos of the procedure, not my procedure, but other people's. And I would press play And I would wait to see what rose up in my body. And then as soon as I had too much, I would press pause and I would just work with what was there, whether through breath or through shaking, crying, dancing. I would take breaks. I would do yoga. I would take naps. I would take walks. But it was very slow to move at the pace of integration. And some of that had to happen with doctors as well. And even the Mayo Clinic visit um, at the very end, it's like my safe space. It's an amazing place to land. But because the things that they told me are still true today and not resolved, it was extremely hard to write those sections. And so writing the book really became this process of moving the whole story out of my body, having to feel where it came up, having to actually integrate it. And it made it very slow. It made it very expensive. (laughs) Uh, I was very exhausted at the end. And it feels like that much more of a triumph because 
when we don't process trauma fully, we lose part of our autonomy. And I think a big part of the wounding that I experienced in the medical system was this loss of sovereignty, this loss of people trusting that I knew what I knew or being able to speak my truth in a way that was heard, um, having control over the types of chaos that were blowing up my life. So there was an immense um, gift in completing this book, not just for the story it tells on the page, but for this sort of shadow experience that I had coming into it. So once you decided that you wanted to go back and sort of follow the the medals and go, you went to Madagascar, you went to Rwanda to see like, where are they mining and what is that like? What was it like to travel there knowing that you had a compromised body? And then can you talk about your experiences there? It was extremely weird. I had traveled abroad before. I traveled to the African continent before. Only one of those times did I already have the device and the sense of my own frailty. One of the drugs on the long QT drugs to avoid list is uh, all of the malaria related medications. So immediately there's this question of like, what am I going to do to prevent malaria? And also if something does happen with my device, do I know of hospitals that actually even know what it is or can do anything. And fundamentally, I just had such a different relationship to risk at that point in my life that these things haunted my parents and like, sorry, (laughs) sorry, mom and dad. (laughs) But for me, it felt like there was a much greater risk in not living my life before I died. I just felt so clear that this was the book that I needed to write. And this was the journey that would lead me to what the book was. And so it felt very clear. And I think there was also a little bit of in the trauma of thinking you can die at any time. It's actually almost easier. This, this is going to make no sense, but this is how it felt in my body. It's almost easier if you do just die. Cause then there's not that tension. So I think a lot of people who've been through trauma do take on, risks because it's actually comforting to be closer to that edge somehow than to be far away from it looking at it. So not that I think that traveling to Madagascar was actually going to kill me. I really felt quite safe for much of the time, but um, it was this weird backdrop to going there because I was interviewing people without really telling them why I was there a lot of the time because they didn't have the context for this type of healthcare system to even know what am I talking about? What in Sierra Leone um, in 2011, the one trip I had taken since I got the device on the African continent that wasn't related to my book writing uh, in Sierra Leone, some of the kids that I knew had sort of felt the device through my skin and they like didn't understand it. And I tried to explain and they said, are you saying you cannot die? <laughs> and I was like, well, I guess there's one thing I can't die from, but I can die from all these other things. So it, it was very bizarre um, to go into these remote villages that had been impacted by mines that um, were mining nickel or cobalt or titanium. And what I was concerned with was just entirely outside the frame of reference. And there were all of these strange power dynamics at play because ultimately part of what I realized was that I had more in common with the people at the mining company. In the US, I had been raised within the logic of corporations and capitalism and um, profit and efficiency and manufacturing. And I didn't understand what it was like to lose ancestral forest that your family has just always been able to access and suddenly you're not allowed to go there. So I was sort of trying as hard as I could to figure out how to meet these people in their experience of this industrialization event. And I also became incredibly aware that everything about me was (laughs) um, just going to have to hope fervently that I was coming anywhere close to understanding what we were even talking about. And so, you know, you kind of had this question, like, is my life worth it? And you were a slow adopter, as you said, to get a phone. 
and you went to areas where they were deforesting, you went to areas where they were trying to be as conscious as possible. You know, they would set up areas next door that were test areas to see. They would try to wait before they started mining and move the animals to a safer spot so they could regenerate later. So there was various uh, conditions, I guess, in these various mines. But you were asking, like, is this worth it? And can you talk a little bit about what you saw and your conclusion? Yes. And it's an ongoing one. I think that's one of the pieces of writing this book that was hardest, was really trying to track why, as artists, we must attempt to ask unanswerable questions (laughs) and really ask them as deeply as we can. Because I do feel like we get closer to something when we ask really deeply, when we go down the rabbit holes, when we are rigorous about the way we consider something. And so uh, kind of originally, I felt very overwhelmed by what I had seen in these mining communities. I felt like, well, I don't think the corporation's policies are good enough. I think Anytime you're centering profit as your primary value, you can have a lot of great programs, but if the prices of the metals market dip, you're going to see those programs really impacted in terms of being able to offer to communities what they said they were going to offer. I also kept seeing how no matter what the corporation offered, the people, because they were living in the places that I went to, they were living primarily in areas where government does not provide necessary services. So there's this kind of franticness around having a presence of someone who could do something to improve your life and then it not happening. And that being everything from building roads to putting in clinics with uh, more water pumps. I mean, I was in a lot of villages that had a lot of different requests and the companies are doing a lot, but they fundamentally told me, we're not here to do God's work. We're here to get rock out of the ground. And I don't think that mining companies should be the ones running our human and and economic and environmental development programs. Like that's not the expertise of a mining company. And they do try to partner with um, NGOs of specific types. And there are sort of corporate social responsibility folks within the organization who are a lot more like my friends who did Peace Corps. I mean, there's a lot going on there, but fundamentally the way our system works is profit is king. And a lot of companies do not act in these places consistently like they have been allowed into someone's home. And so I felt very uh, overwhelmed and kind of negative about it. And I wasn't sure that anything I did made a difference. And I was very surprised when my device buzzed inside me to let me know that it had low battery, that I immediately started making preparations to get another one. It was actually shocking to me. I was like, oh, so we didn't want one last time, but now like everybody's on board down there, like, (laughs) okay. And it really took my next round of device breakages and trauma within the healthcare system for me to get to the place of this device is not worth it for me. Do I have a cell phone sitting over there on the stand doing an Instagram live right now? Like, yes, Um, because we're in this society and it's extremely hard to function without resource extraction. I also, one of the things that I really learned in these villages, talking to people about their lives was that extraction is the fundamental human activity. And everyone in these villages was cutting trees to make houses. They were cutting trees for warmth. They were mining the stream a little bit when um, a kid needed a school fee or someone was sick. So all of us are always harvesting from the earth all the time. But there's this distinction around what is your relationship to it and, and how and why. And do you ever engage in acts of giving back? Is it extraction or is it some kind of circular process? And so there's just a lot there to tease out in terms of how any of us live our entire industrial life. You know, we have a million questions, a million objects embedded in everything we do. But in terms of the defibrillator itself, I got to such a point where the defibrillator hooked me to a medical system that was non-functional, that harmed me. 
I was more concerned about what might happen to my body because of future device breakages and because of the stress of working within that healthcare system than I was concerned about the heart condition. And combined with the ecological and social costs, now it's a hard pass for me. Um, I will not get another device when this current one runs out, and I would like to have it out. Um, But finding a doctor to do that has been a challenge. Yeah. So kind of the last step in the book and in in your journey that you write about is that when you got it replaced, you got a broken one and there's also a wire that got stuck in your heart that's still there. You it, it At the time, it was very dangerous to take it out. So you're saying that you don't want to have another one and you have this wire in your heart. So it, it deepened your trauma. It did. And it really drove home that point that I will carry death until I die. And we all do. But it's very visceral. It's very, um, I have this sense of carrying something that either can't be removed or can't be removed without cutting open my sternum and facing a whole bunch of other risks. I mean, there's no, I don't know if anyone read that cat in the hat book when you were a kid where the cat tries to like clean up the stain with the towel and then he needs to clean the towel. And so it gets all over the bathtub and then he needs to clean the bathtub and it gets all over his hat or whatever. That's how me trying to clean up death (laughs) ended up feeling. It's like, let's throw a defibrillator at it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Now we have a broken defibrillator. Well, if we just take out the broken defibrillator parts, oh, now they're more broken and more entrenched. And now we need more of them. It just, um, yeah, at some point it felt like this is a fundamentally changed relationship both to death and to the promise of medical technology, which has great promise. The ICD is known as the Lazarus device for a reason, but there's a real way that um, our culture wants to reach for technology as a quick solution without taking into account uh, ecological and social costs and also the baggage of how it actually works within systems and lives. And I see the same thing in climate change. I mean, it's really an orientation of our culture to believe that the technology will fix things. And that makes me pause. I'm wondering if you can share a passage from an author that really speaks to you or influenced you as a writer. So this is from Annie Dillard, uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Thomas Merton wrote, There is always a temptation to diddle around in the contemplative life, making itsy-bitsy statues. There is always an enormous temptation in all of life to diddle around, making itsy-bitsy friends and meals and journeys for itsy-bitsy years on end. It is so self-conscious, so apparently moral, simply to step aside from the gaps where the creeks and winds pour down, saying, I never merited this grace, quite rightly, and then to sulk along the rest of your days on the edge of rage. I won't have it. The world is wilder than that in all directions, more dangerous and bitter, more extravagant and bright. We are making hay when we should be making whoopee. We are raising tomatoes when we should be raising Cain or Lazarus. Ezekiel excoriates false prophets as those who have not gone up into the gaps. The gaps are the thing. The gaps are the spirit's one home, the altitudes and latitudes so dazzlingly spare and clean that the spirit can discover itself for the first time like a once blind man unbound. The gaps are the cliffs in the rock where you cower to see the back parts of God. They are the fissures between mountains and cells the wind lances through, the icy narrowing fjord splitting the cliffs of mystery. Go up into the gaps. If you can find them, they shift and vanish too. Stalk the gaps. Squeak into a gap in the soil. Turn and unlock. More than a maple, a universe. This is how you spend the afternoon and tomorrow morning and tomorrow afternoon. Spend the afternoon. You can't take it with you. Can you tell why you tell us why you chose that? So the first time I read Annie Dillard, I was in college and I had never encountered anything like the way she made my chest feel. There were things she was saying that brought me to tears and I couldn't put a finger on why. There was something about the unrolling of the language and the sort of ecstasy of it and the specificity of how she wrote the land and aliveness. And it's a quality that I don't find in many writers. 
And so there was something about reading her that just got in me almost like a fever. And so it's this, um, this sort of influence on me that just like with her work, I almost can't put a finger on. But when I started reading these passages to screen them earlier today, I was in tears. And that's just always how it is with me and Annie Dillard. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. So one of the things that was difficult and eventually very fun about writing Lightning Flowers was I had a lot of good first drafts, well-written sentences, a lot of details squirreled away, but actually figuring out how you frame and move along the ideas and emotional truths of a book was something I really had to learn. And so this is a paragraph from the end of the section in which I almost die of sepsis. And for me, it was a real triumph to figure out how to land that set of very messy experiences in a way that could move the book forward with readers absolutely clear on what they should make of events. It might have been a surprise to others that I was vulnerable to what lived inside me, that I was so very tired. There are those who sing the gospel of the resilience of the young, but it was not surprising to me. That spring I had gone downstairs at work to be swabbed by the clinic nurses more times than I cared to admit, with enormous overgrowths of bacterial vaginitis that kept me up at night itching. That I would lack the basic resources to fight off group B strep at the end of that very long year, when my body was trying to heal not just a wound, but a way of life that had shattered. A spring in which I worked every hour I could to pay a mountain of medical bills. A spring in which I fought with the man I loved, in which I felt our relationship made conditional by health, in which I had begun swallowing shards of betrayal, absorbing the ways he failed me at the moments that mattered most. I find it unsurprising that this could kill a person. In my body lived death. It had always been there. Perhaps it was sex itself, the love of Sam at the end of all this, that cut an entrance into my blood. Some tiny, tiny, final ripping sound no one would ever hear. Something a woman less beaten could have healed. But I wasn't that woman anymore. Do you want to share any more about that? Yeah, there's something about the end of that first year of illness and the way that we often talk about when a condition is over or when someone comes out of the hospital, there's this kind of expectation that things go back to normal. And I think one of the things I was really trying to pin in the writing was the changes that are there, even if everything looks normal. Because right after that, I looked like a very able-bodied 25-year-old. I turned 25, my partner left, I started trail running a lot again, I sort of settled into life with the device, and I was really a changed person from this experience of knowing that uh, someone who was so healthy in so many ways could have a bacteria that lives naturally in the vagina, could have that enter her bloodstream and have her immune system unable to fight that off. I think in in sepsis, I really learned that the body can receive treatments without always utilizing them fully. You can pump someone full of antibiotics and still lose them. There was that relationship that I suddenly had to what is it that makes me pull through this? And something like sepsis, you can probably hear it in the, the different tone of my voice. These experiences can be so disorienting, so rearranging, so overwhelming to try to integrate. And so writing them really requires figuring out how to uh, make language disorienting and still oriented at the same time, make the experience overwhelming, but still carry meaning. And so really figuring out how to run that whole section where I'm sort of in and out of knowing what's going on. And there are a lot of like medical details that are necessary, but could be too clinical or too boring. How you get all of that um, to add up to something. These experiences so often feel when we're done with them, like what do I even do with that? And so it was a huge triumph to be able to write that whole section and especially feel like I landed it. Where do you write? So I realized when you sent me this question that over the last five years, I have more often than not 
been living on the road. And so I write from a lot of different places. When I'm very early in the process, I basically have to be in some kind of room with silence, usually cabins. I do really well with wood or stone around me. And then once a book has momentum, I work very well in coffee shops and loud bars. And so you'll often see me editing my work with a stack of pages uh, and a neat whiskey. <laughs> I wrote most of Lightning Flowers at a coffee shop in Tucson called Exo Roast Company, where uh, they open at 7 a.m. and I would be there to get my table. And I would sort of move through their menu all day so that I got to have my space. And at 6 p.m. they would turn into a mezcal bar. <laughs> and so in the final, final days before I turned in the manuscript to my editor, um, I would be sweating in the middle of Tucson summer and sipping on these mezcals. Um, so thank God for Exo Roast Company. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? This is a funny question for me because I feel like all of the world is trying to keep me away from writing. And to be away from writing is to be away from myself. So there was a, another Annie Dillard passage that I was tempted to pull out, but that didn't contain quite the same ecstasy that had to do with when you are a writer, you are only that. And I know that that's not true for all writers, but it is true for me. So if I am writing and I need to leave the desk and I go for a trail run, it's in service of the writing <laughs> most of the time. Um, to have conversations with friends moves something forward in me that then I'm able to return. And it's only recently that I've really been thinking about the fact that <laughs> this is not how other people live, that um, this is really, uh, along with Northwest Wyoming, this is really the love of my life. And so um, I don't know that I choose things that take me away from writing unless I have to. Um, calling insurance companies takes me away from writing. How about that? <laughs> Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I have a little collection of folks from different parts of my writing life. One person that I worked with at a university, one, uh, two people that I went to grad school with. But there's one person that came to mind first, and her name is Jenny, Jenny O'Connell. And in 2013, I was trying to figure out how to run a Kickstarter to fund some of the research in this book. And on Kickstarter, there were not really many legitimate writers. There were writing projects, but they weren't like literary, promising, beautiful writers. And there was Jenny. And so I gave Jenny's project $10. <laughs> and when I went to fund my own, I reached out to her and I said, hey, I've been watching your process. Do you have any tips? And we exchanged a few emails and then she funded my project for $10. And over the years, as we would get each other's Kickstarter updates, um, she started writing back and it turned into this correspondence. And finally I said, would you want to exchange work? And so she is one of my closest friends through WhatsApp. I've only been in her presence in person, maybe twice, three times in my life, but um, she is a great uh, eye for immediately seeing through to like, here's what I'm seeing happening overall. And also like, here are some of the sentences that are not yet at Katie level quality. <laughs> She's got that gift of giving the feedback in a way that makes you actually want to work on it rather than hide and cry. How have you dealt with rejection? I cultivate the spiritual belief that things that are not for me will, will not, um, the things that are for me will not pass me by. And that's not always easy, but I think it's been most of the time conceivable for me to look at a single rejection and understand whether it's about the work not being a fit or not being ready or about something like, oh, it's nice that you thought you should apply to that journalism fellowship, but you are someone who reports without necessarily being a journalist and you would be putting yourself in a space that you don't need to be in or that would be hard for you in like a not useful way. I think there there was a lot of confusion for me early on about what a writing career should look like and how I should work and the types of things I should try to do and a desire to get certain acclaim or be perceived a certain way. And sometimes that was that type of application to that type of thing that I got rejected from. And so a lot of, um, a lot of the things that I have gotten feel like my life. And I try to see those patterns of like, this one is for me and that one was not. And what is your favorite word? 
I had trouble with this one, but the word I probably use the most, so I must love it, is gorgeous. Thank you so much for listening, and uh, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. This interview was recorded at Bookbinders Basalt. You can learn more at bookbindersbasalt.com. If you like today's show with Catherine Standifer, author of the memoir Lightning Flowers, check out my interview with Alexandra Fuller on her memoir Travel Light, Move Fast. We talked about grief, racism, denial, and the concept of home. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 385 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Jai Chakrabarty, Mona Simpson, and Catherine Ma. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.